So would you open your Bible to 2 Timothy? We'll be starting in chapter 1, looking at verses 1 to 7 tonight. Uh, just as you're thinking ahead, this semester is a 13-week semester, so it'll go through April. What's the last night? The 26th? Is that the last night, Doug? Doug's teaching the last night. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're building up to Doug. <laughs> He'll be the highlight of the semester. But the week before the 19th will actually be a mission night. Most of the classes will join together and will be in here. And uh, one of our missionaries from Central Asia will be here that Wednesday speaking with us. And the Sunday before will also be a mission emphasis. So 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you so I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, uh, the very first part of this is a, sort of a typical greeting from Paul. And so often we've become so accustomed to some variation of what he says here that we just kind of skim over it. Um, but tonight uh, I, I want to do two things uh, before we get to um, uh, the last several verses of this. I want to talk about uh, first uh, apostleship and then I want to get into some historical background to this book, particularly since this is the second of two books. Last semester we studied uh, 1 Timothy. In verse 1 and 2, it, the greeting is, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, uh, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child. Uh, uh, normally, Paul writes to churches, uh, but in uh, this epistle, he is writing to a specific individual, to Timothy, his protege, uh, w- w- with whom he has had a long and very personal relationship. Uh, but even though uh, uh, Timothy is a friend and a colleague, uh, it's still somewhat of a formal greeting. And that's because even though this letter is addressed to Timothy, it's also written for the church. Uh, the expectation was that uh, Timothy would read it, but then it would be read at the church where Timothy at this point was pastoring in Ephesus, and then possibly other churches uh, if it's spread around. Uh, I'm not, uh, we don't know if Paul was cognizant uh, that this letter would be included in the canon of Scripture, but it is. 
And so Paul not only writes to Timothy, the church at Ephesus, and what other churches read it, he writes to us. This is God speaking through Timothy uh, to us as well. And he writes not simply as a fellow Christian or even a fellow pastor. He writes, it says, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wants them to understand and receive his instructions in a way that's appropriate. Uh, The greeting is, uh, uh, like I said, similar to others, uh, but in all these letters, he is writing with apostolic authority. He writes as one who, what he says is binding on the church because he comes not in his own authority, but as an apostle in the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, As an apostle, Paul has a particular office in the church, and I will argue that it's an office that no longer exists, that it was for that time and that place. Uh, uh, And so, um, and that's exactly why I want to spend some time talking about it. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that there is no other foundation laid other than that which was laid in Christ Jesus. Christ is the foundation of our salvation. We are saved by the person and work of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. If you were here Sunday, uh, we talked about... uh, the content of faith, that's the content of the gospel, the content of what we place our faith in, that which we believe, that which we trust, Jesus who lived, died, and was raised on our behalf. However, Jesus is not with us in the flesh, is he? Uh, We did not see him or hear his teaching. We did not personally witness his resurrection. So how do we know this content which we're supposed to believe? Jesus left us with credible, authoritative eyewitness accounts. He gave us the apostles whom he chose to function as his hand-picked authoritative witnesses. In Acts 1, in verses 1 to 3, uh, Luke is writing, and it's his uh, second uh, um, letter. In both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he writes to a man called Theophilus. And he says uh, to Theophilus in Acts 1, I have dealt with in, in the prior book all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, to the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Between Jesus' resurrection and ascension to glory is 40 days, and what Uh, Luke tells us is his goal was to spend that 
time with his chosen apostles. And it's important uh, uh, for us to understand that. Jesus, he appeared to a lot of other people during those 40 days. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that there's over 500 witnesses of the resurrection. 500 people saw Jesus alive. But Jesus' primary goal was to be with his chosen apostles. Why them specifically? Uh, Acts 1.8 tells us that the apostles were to be his witnesses. That's who he's speaking to. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Through their commissioned authoritative eyewitness, the gospel went out. And now, uh, as we take the gospel into the, the ends of the earth, we don't go in our own words, but we go in whose words? The words of the apostles. The gospel that they eyewitnessed, that they recorded for us. They were the first missionaries. They were the first church leaders. And through the apostles and their associates, uh, the gospels were recorded for us. Uh, Both Matthew and John were apostles. Uh, Luke is associated with the apostle Paul. Um, Mark... Uh, it's recorded that his, in church history, that his uh, gospel is actually a, a record of Peter's preaching. Uh, the New Testament requirement to be an apostle was to be an actual eyewitness of the resurrection. In Acts, still in Acts 1, in verses 21 to 22, there's, uh, if you remember, Judas betrayed Jesus and then uh, he commits suicide, and there's 11 remaining apostles, and, and this is what they say, and this is after Jesus has ascended, and they, rec- they recognize that their group wasn't complete, that Jesus had chosen 12 apostles, and that their number had to equal to 12. For whatever reason, Jesus chose 12. Um, and they said, one of the men, we need to pick one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day Christ was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness of the resurrection. And they chose Matthias by Lot, which is the last time that Lot's was used in the Bible uh, for Christians to make a decision. Uh, Matthias was already a witness. He, had, he, was, he was already qualified in that sense. He was with Jesus. He saw the resurrected Christ. But they said, now he's going to become a witness. He's going to be an apostolic witness. Uh, I would argue that the rest of the New Testament indicates that they got it wrong. That the rest of the New Testament would indicate that Paul was to be uh, the replacement apostle. But the, uh, the important thing to note is that the original remaining 11 knew that their number was incomplete. They recognized that they needed to replace Judas as a Christ 
commissioned, authoritative eyewitness. Now, Paul, uh, who I believe replaces Judas, did not witness Jesus' earthly ministry, as far as we know. He did not hear Jesus preach, and he did not see his miracles prior to his death on the cross. Uh, Nor did he, as far as we know, encounter Christ during these 40 days. But uh, his experience is the same as the other apostles. In Galatians 1, we're told that Paul received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He met Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on the road uh, uh, um, and then it, he was later trained, it seems, by Christ, taught by Christ what the gospel was. And so that qualified him uh, to be an apostolic minister, to be an official eyewitnesses. The apostles, including Paul, are given an authoritative eyewitness Uh, authority to speak on behalf of Christ and to lay out and explain the foundation of our salvation found in Christ. Think about this, uh, Ephesians 2, 19 to 21. Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Here, uh, when it talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it's not talking about the New Testament gift of prophecy, which we believe continues, but rather the office of prophet. That the foundation for the church, the explanation of the gospel, the God speaking through men to let us know the truth, was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Uh, Jesus is the cornerstone, meaning he is the one that sets the trajectory of the building. And along with the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Jesus lays the foundation in his life, death, and resurrection. But it's through the eyewitness account of the apostles that that uh, work of Christ is made uh, known to us. As faithful witnesses, people come to faith and they begin to share their faith with others. But what they share is that same apostolic witness. I may share the gospel with a friend in my own words, but what I share is true only to the degree that it agrees with what the apostles have already said. Does that make sense? I can only repeat the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The gospel was given once for all to the church through the apostolic witness. Christ merited salvation in his life, death, and resurrection. And the apostolic witness is how we know about it today. 
How did we receive this once for all message? Through their eyewitness account. The apostles spoke an unmediated message, meaning God spoke directly through them. Our message today is mediated through God's word meaning it comes to us by the Word of God through the Scriptures. Now, perhaps you're asking why I'm spending so much time on what seems like something that doesn't matter to us anymore. Okay, we got the Bible, we get it, all right. Um, The reason I'm spending the time is um, there has been a movement in the church uh, in the last... 10, 15 years of men who call themselves apostles. Uh, But, as far as I can tell, they're not qualified to be called apostles. And they want to lead the church and have authority over the church in ways that are, I would view, inappropriate. Uh, The two apostolic functions in the New Testament was to be an eyewitness uh, of the resurrection and to exercise not just sort of pastorally authority in the church, but to exercise apostolic authority. Uh, In other words, the elders here can make a decision and that may be binding on the church, that might be what we do, but it doesn't mean you always have to agree with it, does it? Because we don't speak an unmediated message. We're taking God's word, we're praying, we're using wisdom to make the best decisions we know how to do. And we're asking God to lead and guide us. When an apostle spoke, that's God speaking. When they spoke with his authority in his word, that was God speaking to us. And, you know, sometimes... We may disagree with God, but we know that's wrong. In fact, that's something to confess. The New Testament definition for apostle would indicate that we live in a post-apostolic age. The office of uh, uh, apostle has passed. Um, Last uh, semester on Wednesday nights, we looked at First Timothy, where Paul writes to Timothy about how to structure or organize the church. And the interesting thing to note is Paul tells Timothy about two offices in the church, which are still with us today, elder and deacon. There is no instruction in the Bible for an ongoing office of apostle. The only offices in the church today are elder and deacon. Uh, now, some would argue, that, and, and, and rightfully so, the word apostle in the Greek actually means sent one. And so some would like to argue that they're using the term apostle, not with a capital A, but with a small case A. We're not the same as those apostles. We're we're a small case. We're the sent ones. And, and I understand that the point that they're making. But the problem is, uh, the Bible kind of defines for us. It doesn't matter what the, what the word meant in Greek. 
in the, in the culture as a whole, how does the Bible define it? How did the Bible use that term? And then how has the church understood that term for 2,000 years? And if you try to use that word in a different kind of way, it's going to be unwise and confusing. And so I would suggest that those who are doing it cease. Now, having uh, uh, addressed uh, that initial issue of uh, Paul's apostleship, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some background uh, to this letter. Uh, the, as I said, uh, Paul identifies the first reader of this letter as Timothy, who he calls my beloved child. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What a, a wonderful description of affection on the part of Paul for this young pastor who he mentored. Uh, we are introduced uh, to Timothy back in Acts 16, uh, right after uh, Paul begins his second missionary journey with Silas. It, it says this in, in Acts 16, 1-4, Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so Paul took Timothy and circumcised him, not because he needed to be circumcised to be a Christian, but because of the Jews who were in those places. In other words, let's, let's avoid even having that discussion and creating drama where we don't need to have drama. For they all knew that uh, Timothy's father was a Greek. As they went on their way through cities, they delivered to them, Paul and Timothy and Silas, uh, the observance, the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. The background for that story is Acts uh, 15, the Jerusalem Council, uh, where uh, the question of, do, actually the question was, do, do Gentile believers need to be circumcised? Do they need to become uh, Jewish? And the answer was no. Uh, in order to become a follower of Christ, all you need is faith. And then Paul and Silas are sent with a letter to share with all the churches what that decision is. Uh, and so Paul takes this letter, and in uh, almost the first place he stops, he comes across this young man, Timothy. And for whatever reason, he sees a potential in Timothy for ministry. Uh, Timothy's already a believer, but uh, uh, Paul takes him under his wing. And in a certain sense... Uh, Paul, uh, he becomes, a, Timothy becomes an apprentice under Paul, which is the way that education happened back there. If you remember, uh, um, uh, uh, Paul himself, before coming to faith, uh, was discipled by a well-known Pharisee, and that's how training was done. Uh, you, you, you were with your teacher. You followed, and even the disciples, it's interesting, after Jesus dies and raises and is ascended, the, the, the term that's used for his disciples is that the Pharisees recognized that they had been with Jesus. By being with Jesus, 
they learned and they assimilated his behavior and his teaching. And that really is the way a discipleship is done, isn't it? Uh, we tend to and, and, uh, focus a lot on content, on information, uh, but just as important as studying the Bible and reading the Bible and discussing theology is actually just younger Christians being with older Christians who can help them along the way, that can share with them wisdom and what, what they have learned. And the fact is, every one of us can do that. Every single one of us, even if you're a new believer. Because it's not going to be long until there's someone else who's a little younger than you in the faith. And you can just begin to encourage them with what you know. That's one of the things as a church, what we want to be. We want to be uh, disciple-making disciples. Those that are investing and spending time with others. And the importance, actually, there's almost a reciprocal importance in discipleship. In a certain sense, uh, younger Christians need the wisdom of older Christians. But the wonderful thing is, uh, older Christians uh, get to think more deeply as they spend time with younger Christians. Because it's new and young Christians that ask the questions that we don't even think about anymore. Uh, questions that sometimes are hard to answer. And it, and it drives us to think, that, that's a good question. I don't have an answer for that. Let me think about that. Let me think of what Scripture says and how to answer that. And so there's this benefit on both ends. Uh, the importance... there there. There is an importance of formal education. Uh, I, I have a, a Master of Divinity from a seminary, and I find it invaluable. Um, but before going to seminary, I was apprenticed on staff, which actually made my seminary experience more beneficial because immediately I could think about why what I was learning was important. It wasn't just information. It was information that I immediately was connecting to experience in ministry and people. And I was realizing the importance of it rather than just, i got to learn this stuff for a test. Which sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Um, it's interesting. That's one of the things I, I truly appreciate uh, about Sovereign Grace is the emphasis on training in the local church. That it's up to the local church uh, to identify leaders and to raise them up. And some of those leaders will potentially be pastors. And as you begin to build them up uh, and give them opportunity, they're tested, they're trained, and they're equipped. And then we can send them to pastor's college. Then they can get their formal education. So much uh, from what I've seen and experienced in other churches and, and denominations is it's almost the reverse order. Uh, you go to college, you go to seminary, then you go back to the church. And I always think that's always the, the less helpful of uh, those possibilities. And Timothy uh, is uh, uh, mentored by Paul. Uh, we don't know how old he was, uh, but he's with him for 10 years. Uh, at least, uh, from around 50 A.D. till 
when Paul was in prison the first time in Rome at the end of Acts, which is around 59 or 60 A.D. And so they had spent, it doesn't mean that they were, were together all the time. Sometimes Timothy is sent or remains in a church for a while and then comes back to Paul, but they are in ministry together. Paul is training him and giving him responsibility uh, so that he is better equipped. And uh, when Paul is in prison in Rome in Acts, in the end of Acts, Timothy is with him. Uh, some think he might have been in prison himself, but most think he wasn't, because all the concerns seems to be about Paul and not Timothy. So, but it seems as Timothy was in Rome that he wouldn't abandon Paul, that he stayed there and he ministered to Paul in prison. It's interesting uh, when Paul writes uh, the letters to the Philippians and to Philemon, which are letters written when Paul was in prison, they're from Paul and Timothy. Uh, so they were still in uh, work together. Not long after this first imprisonment, Paul appoints Timothy as an elder at the church of Ephesus. Uh, Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus uh, for not very long when Paul writes him his first letter, 1 Timothy. And we think that letter perhaps was written in 62 or 64 AD, somewhere in there. Um, and Paul states why he writes that first letter to Timothy. And we saw this last semester in 1 Timothy 3. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Uh, when when uh, Paul talks about how people should conduct themselves, he's not simply thinking about individual behavior. It is that, but it's also our corporate behavior. How do we function as a church? What are the parameters? A good, the chapter 3 is basically... Uh, the, the descriptions of pastors and elders, what's the requirement for them? Uh, how are churches to be structured and what does church life look like? Although Timothy had been working with Paul for some 10 years, he, he still was inexperienced as a pastor. He, he is experienced as a, a missionary. He's experienced... As, as an assistant to Paul, but he hasn't had experience as a pastor, which is something different. And so when Timothy comes to Ephesus, uh, of course he finds a church with problems, because every church has problems, because every church is filled with people, and people are filled with problems. Not these people in here. It's the people in those other classes. But people and problems. Uh, it's interesting, just a, just a couple of observations or insights, perhaps what, what Timothy was like. Um, 
it's possible that uh, where Paul is a very, seems like a very strong personality, even though at times he says he's not, uh, he never seems sh- to shy away from being bold. Uh, Timothy perhaps may have been a little more timid. Um, in 1 Timothy 4, the book we looked at last semester, he says, uh, Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Don't let others, in other words, Paul even recognized that perhaps Timothy, whether it's because of his age uh, or because of just his temperament, that uh, he might have been feeling a slightly uncomfortable, that people were looking down on him. And so he wants to encourage him in that. Don't, don't let that rule you, Timothy. Uh, uh, in other words, he's, he's calling him actually to be bold in the faith. Don't let how you're feeling, how people are treating you, to determine how you lead that church. It's also very possible uh, uh, that... Um, Timothy was prone to illness. Again, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells him, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I don't know if if Timothy was sickly. My wife says I'm sickly because I get sick pretty easy. She never gets sick. Um, Or I get sick and I complain a lot, one or the other. I don't know which it is. And, but I even find it interesting, and maybe the, the ailments and the stomach issues are connected to the, if it's true that Timothy struggled with uh, being timid or an introvert or fear of man issues, which is very common for everybody, uh, whether that was the cause of stomach issues. You know, sort of uh, maybe Timothy was working on an ulcer or something like that. We don't know, but uh, he's presenting us uh, this information regardless uh, 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 we need to recognize that uh, Timothy has struggles. Whether, uh, he, whether he's sickly or not, whether he's timid or not, he's a person just like us. Sometimes we, we create people in the Bible as a step above us. Uh, they don't understand our experience, but they do. Uh, uh, we're just like them. Um, but regardless of any of this, these other things, Timothy, he's, he's inexperienced. He's perhaps timid, uh, maybe sickly, perhaps nervous. He's, it, it almost together, it seems like the kind of person, a young, timid, not always healthy pastor just seems primed to be the kind of person that others can take advantage of or push around. That's just human nature. And so those were possibly some of the things happening at Ephesus. But beyond those issues, there were other problems as well. Uh, There were false teachers stirring up uh, issues in the church. In 1 Timothy 1, uh, Paul says, There are certain persons who are swerving from the faith, having wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding the law. They don't know what they're saying or what they're talking about as they make confident assertions. Then later in that same first chapter of uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 
uh, uh, Paul says, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hermineus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may, not, they may learn not to blaspheme. Being handed over to Satan is the same language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks about church discipline. That these men who were teaching falsehoods, it was so serious, so dividing, so anti-Christian, that it seems that they were excommunicated from the church. However, in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, we're told that they're still causing problems. Uh, they're, they're mentioned by name, and then Timothy is told to avoid that kind of irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among whom are Hermineus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Which is an issue that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 15. And they are upsetting the faith of some. There are a number of different problems happening in Ephesus that Timothy, as the pastor, has to address. And so Paul, in this second epistle, is writing Timothy to remain steadfast and to persevere. That's always the hard thing, isn't it? When we come against trouble, how do... Sometimes we just want to give up. I just... I just want to stop. I, I want to work in McDonald's where you go home or wherever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, there are lots of jobs where you go home at night and you don't have to think about the job. You can work at, you know, Sam's or something like that. I just read a story about uh, 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 um, um, a tech guru kind of guy who was so stressed out that he took a job at Costco for eight months. He says, the best thing I ever did. Uh, it was hard work, but after about a month, my mind just cleared. Because uh, all you had to do was stock shelves and then go home and didn't think about it. And so Paul wants Timothy, uh, who's perhaps, we don't know exactly because it doesn't tell us, is he feeling overwhelmed? Is he feeling pressured? He has to in some, to some extent. And so Paul wants him to persevere. And so he tells him in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 to 5, what does he say to this young pastor who's, who's struggling with whatever? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and teaching. Do what you're supposed to do. You know, sometimes in, in church life, we want to manage people and problems. And, and, and sometimes you have to address things, and there is some of that. But really, what are we to do? Preach the word. With patience and teaching. And let the Spirit 
do what the Spirit does through the Word. Preach the Word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and teaching. Why? And doesn't this sound like today? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We think that's a modern problem. It goes back to the first century. It's just what people do. They will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander into myths. But you, always be sober-minded. Endure sufferings. Do the work of an evangelist. And then he says this, fulfill your ministry. That's the work of a pastor. That's, that's not just the work of a pastor. That's our work together. It's not just Timothy who's supposed to do this. We're all supposed to what? Speak the truth in love. We're supposed to exhort, reprove, rebuke when necessary with patience. That's what it means to speak truth in love, isn't it? that we care enough about one another that we are willing to say some hard things at times. And that's why relationship is so important. That's why we emphasize community so often. It's far easier to tell a friend, uh, 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 and it, to, to address a friend in an issue than someone you don't know. In fact, if you don't know them, you probably don't know all the details yet. I remember, uh, I can think of a number of different men over the years who um, just were doing unwise things and, and just having to, to, to talk to them. And, uh, but there were men that had been in small groups with me or we've done ministry. Maybe they were an usher that worked with me. And they didn't always listen to what I said as far as doing it, but they would hear me out because they knew I loved them. And they knew what I was saying was said out of love for them. And so Paul uh, is writing Timothy to persevere, to fulfill his ministry, to do the things... Whatever the problems may be, whatever you think is the best maneuver, the most important thing for you to do is do what the church is supposed to do. Preach the word. And so Paul is writing Timothy, but he writes as we go through this book with a, with a certain sense of urgency. Because Paul knows that his ministry and his time on this earth is coming to an end. And 1 Timothy was written when Paul was in Macedonia, telling Paul, Timothy how to organize the church. 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison, and he will likely be executed within a year or so, perhaps even months. We're thinking uh, this letter was written in 64 or 65 AD, this letter to Timothy. 
uh, Eusebius, who was a, uh, a bishop of the church in the third century, says that Paul was martyred in 67 AD. But church history has figured that it's probably closer to 65. At any moment, Paul is going to die. He's going to have his head chopped off. And that's a mercy. Because he was a Roman citizen, he wouldn't be put on a cross. And so Paul is in prison. He's alone, except for Luke. All the other people who were his associates are in other places or have deserted the faith. And in 2 Timothy 4, he asked Timothy, he says, come quickly. Bring my books and bring my cloak. Uh, which isn't an unimportant detail. It means he's cold. Wherever he's at, whatever prison cell he's in, is probably wet and cold. And he needs his cloak. We don't know. What was that? Oh, no problem. Uh, we don't know if Timothy ever made it to Rome to see Paul alive. I don't, I don't know how Timothy felt when he opened this letter. Here's a man that he's known for perhaps 15 years now. A man who had tremendous influence on his life. And as he opens this letter, and he starts to read, and he begins to recognize that this may be the final message he ever receives. How that affected the way he read it. A couple of years ago, a, a close friend of mine died. And uh, I don't know, it was a month or two after he died. I was on my cell phone. And I saw that I had a voicemail from my birthday that I never listened to. I listened differently than I ever did before. Timothy needs to persevere. Uh, you know, maybe he even thought, how am I going to do this without Paul? Uh, but God is faithful. And we can't put too much stock and dependence in an individual other than Christ. We can be thankful for the people that have influence on us. But our hope is in Christ. Timothy needs to learn to persevere in his faith and in his ministry. And, and to encourage Timothy to do this, he wants Timothy to remember two things. Look with me at verses 5 to 7. Paul says, I am reminded 
of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit of fear, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. First thing I want you to, 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 to notice is he tells him uh, to fan into flame the gift of God. Give attention to the gift from God that you have received. Fan the flame. Keep it burning. Remember that gift that you received with the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands probably indicates his ordination. That time when he was made an elder at Ephesus. Uh, God makes men elders. God calls men, and he's the one that makes them elders. And in Acts uh, 22, 28, Paul is talking, actually he's talking to the elders at Ephesus before Timothy is a pastor there. And he's giving a farewell, and he says, pay careful attention to yourself, elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Overseer, elder, pastor, all kind of synonymous terms. A pastor or an elder's calling is from God, but the authority to be an elder is received when a man actually is ordained and installed in office. It is the church recognizing the gifts and character of the man and the church that affirms that, yes, this man has been called to help lead the church. But you don't lead the church. You don't have the authority of an elder until you become an elder. So that process, that ordination is important. It is the church... Uh, giving an amen to what they believe God has called this person to do. Think of it like in uh, a marriage. You may love this woman, but she's not your wife until you say, I do. Your love doesn't change one minute to the next. But before, she's, she's not your wife. Now she is. In the same way, it's the church that, whether it's both locally and regionally, that says, I do. And a man becomes an elder or a leader in the church. And that's, again, the process we have in Sovereign Grace. Another thing that I appreciate about our family of churches is, is not just the local training and then formal training, it's the local affirmation and then regional affirmation. Every man who becomes an elder in our region, the Northeast region, is affirmed by their church first and then brought. He is uh, tested and examined by men in the region. And then the region votes. Yes, we believe this man is called by God to be an elder. And then he's ordained and installed. Whatever uh, the gift that uh, whether it's his ordination or something else, whatever the gift is that Paul wants Timothy to fan the flame, doesn't really matter for us uh, because Paul doesn't give us the specifics. If Paul wanted us to know specifically, he would tell us. But 
as it applies to us, I think it's important. Uh, because the admonition to Timothy is the same admonition to us. Flame, uh, fan into flame the gift of God. That was true for Timothy. That is true for all Christians. Uh, and so it's, it's true for us. Work at, tend to, develop, fan the flame of the gift or gifts that God has given you. Think of uh, 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 Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, he's speaking about spiritual gifts, and he says, to each, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given, to each Christian, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, as it talks about gifts in the church. To each person is given a gift or gifts from God. For what purpose? For our own personal edification and benefit? Well, there's some benefit to ourselves, but that's not what it says. It says they're given for the common good. They are given, these gifts are given for our corporate life together. We are to use our gifts to help build the church, to build one another up in our shared life and our common life together. Uh, the gifts, these spiritual gifts that are described in First uh, Corinthians 12 to 14 and then uh, are expanded elsewhere are manifestations of the Holy Spirit and therefore flow, they flow from our union with Christ. The Spirit that unites us to Christ gives us Gift or gifts that we are to use for life in the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul says, All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Holy Spirit who apportions to each as he wills. God gives and empowers gifts to each of us so that we might serve one another in the life of the church. Now, we can use our gifts in other areas. You can use whatever gifts that God has given you to, to serve at ACS, Land Christian School, or you could uh, serve in some community food bank, or you can, all kinds of places that you can volunteer and use your gifts, and that's wonderful, and I, we would actually encourage that. That's a wonderful way to help other Christians or to build relationships with non-believers if it's a community uh, outreach kind of thing. But your spiritual gifts are given to be exercised primarily and firstly in the life of the church. That's how the church operates, by us all doing our part. We have five minutes. That's my alarm. Um, and we're going to do it. All right. The church operates only as each of us is doing our part, using our gifts to build up the church. If we do not use our gifts in the church, then the church is weakened. You and I and our gifts have been providentially been designed and given by God. And then you have been placed in a specific 
local church, either this church or if you're visiting some other church. And God wants you to use your gifts where he has placed you. God has gifted you to play a particular part in our shared life together. And so each of us is needed. And so the question is, are you faithfully using and developing your gifts in the life of the church for the glory of God? Think of this. This is what God says in 1 Peter 4, 8 to 12. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of a very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Above all, of most importance, use your gift as an expression of love to serve one another to the glory of God. That's a profound and important statement. And we don't think of it in those kinds of terms. We serve, well, you know, if I want to. Above all, God gifts each of us in a way that he wants so that our, God, our gifts are used in the body for the common good. How do we know what gift we have? Just start serving. If you hear there's a need, serve in that area. And you will find out if that's a gift for you. I had a professor, adjunct professor in seminary who was a, a Bible teacher in a Christian school. So he, was, he felt called to, to student ministry. That's what he thought his gifting was. And so in his church, and he went to 10th Presbyterian in Center City, Philadelphia, uh, he volunteered to um, be part of the Wednesday, their Wednesday night program. He says, I was terrible at it. Uh, yes, I am called to, to this demographic group, but not to function in that way. That didn't work for me. And, you know, when the year came up, he, he wondered what he was going to do. How am I going to tell him I don't want to do it again? This, I, I don't think I'm good at this. They went to him and said, we're not going to ask you to do this again. <laughs> You're not good at it. Use your gift and God will show you. If you have a gift of hospitality, it's just going to come out of you. You're going to be hospitable. If you have a gift of leadership, you don't have to go around and tell everybody that. I'm a leader. You know what? If you're a leader, people are going to start following you. There was a, a seminary professor down in uh, Texas. He says, if you claim to be a leader and people don't follow, you're just taking a walk. <laughs> leaders, people follow leaders. If you have a gift of helps, you're just going to plug in wherever you're needed. And, and so often we want, the, we, want, we want spectacular gifts. We want gifts that I want to walk on water and, or I want to preach or I want to, I wanna, you know, whatever, whatever you think is important. You know what gifts are important? The people who clean bathrooms. 
I had a friend, uh, they left the area almost 20 years ago, and he had a gift of help. He, he, sometimes we think these more important, these bigger gifts are so important. He was so crucial to my personal ministry. When, and I think I've shared this story before on Wednesday nights. When he left, I wanted to tell him, God doesn't want you to go. That's what I wanted to say, but I couldn't say that in good faith. But I did say to him, if you leave, you're going to affect my ministry. It's going to be diminished because you're not here. And I was, I was very serious, and, and that was true. And that was as strong a statement as I felt I could say in good faith. No gift is unimportant. Use your gift, develop it, and use it in the life of the church. Every gift is needed. Your fi- you know what gift is, is perhaps more the most important? This is something we all can do. Your faithfulness. In verse 5, what does Paul t- uh, talk about to Timothy? His, his, the heritage of faith. His grandmother and his mother. That's not a spiritual gift. Well, it is a spiritual gift because faith is a gift from God, isn't it? They were a godly example to Timothy. We all can do that. That's a universal gift to all who have faith. We can follow God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, and we leave an example for others to follow. That, if you're a parent, that will impact your kids more than anything else. More than whatever you think is important. That's more important than their grades and what college or baseball. or That's the most important thing. Put God first. Because that has to do with the the trajectory and the shape of their life. It's going to affect who they marry. That's going to affect how they raise their kids. That's going to affect their eternity and the eternity of generations to come. Seek Christ in his kingdom and God will will use you to impact others, whether you're a parent, whether you're a friend, or just a fellow church member. Let people see your giftedness of faithfulness. That's true of Sunday school teachers, small group leaders and hosts, those that clean the bathroom. They do it for the glory of God because each job is necessary, and each job can be done for the glory of God. Years ago, I had an usher who, when people walked in the door, he wanted to make sure they felt welcomed. And in one sense, he, you know, people, oh, oh, sure, that's not an important job. Um, yeah, I agree, people. I had a meeting with all my ushers. There was about 20 of us at the time. There were three or four guys that mentioned him specifically by name and the impact he had on them when they first came. And he would do that whether you were a visitor or whether you were a regular not knowing what encouragement do you need this week. He has since passed on into glory. And maybe he thought, you know, I I haven't done much in my life. But because of that, I believe God said, well done, good and faithful servant. 
enter into the joy of your master. Doug, will you pray for us?